If you have a Bible, pull it out. We're going to be jumping around to many different scriptures tonight. We'll spend a lot of time in 1 Thessalonians 4. I can tell you that's where we'll be first. We're going to spend a lot of time. In the next month of our gatherings, we come together, we're going to dive in very deeply to eschatology. Now, I know that's a big, long word. Eschatology is from the Greek word eschaton, which means last. If you put logia on the end of it, the other Greek word for logic or the word we take logic from, it also means the study of. Eschatology means a study of the last things. All right, amen. Everyone's dismissed. I put more, Chris and I were joking before, Pastor Chris and I, that I put way too much study hours into this. So this will either be wonderful and comprehensive or the biggest train wreck ever. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which one it's going to be. But I put a lot of study time into these, into these slides. So to the glory of God, I pray that you learn something tonight and that I just don't confuse you even more than you may be. We're talking about the rapture of the church. And if you get nothing else, I want you to see it on the title slide. The day of the Lord for those in Messiah Jesus is meant to comfort you. All right? We talk a lot about eschatology in the end of days in the book of Daniel, coupled with Revelation. And we'll, like, we'll look plenty at Daniel and Revelation tonight, uh, Lord willing. This doctrine is not meant to terrify. This doctrine is meant to comfort those in Messiah. So, are there good reasons for believing in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church? Which means, so that I can break that down before we get too deep into things, do you believe, or Pastor Jay, is there good reason to believe that Messiah Jesus will come and take his own off the earth before the last seven years of human history unfolds, which so I can tell you right now, believe you me, I've studied it very hard. The seven-year tribulation period described for you, basically in Revelation chapter 4 through 19, don't get offended with my verbiage here because this is the truth. Hell on earth. Is it a fairly accurate description of what the tribulation is going to look like? It will be an atrocious, horrific, warlike, planet-plagued, curses, people literally praying for death and death not finding them. It is going to be a horrific time. So there are there good reasons to believe that Jesus will rescue the church from that? I'd say yes, of course. There is good evidence for this position from at least three lines of reasons the way I think. First, I believe the Bible teaches this doctrine. And that is the most important thing because without that, we have no other points, right? We don't preach camp. We don't preach, we don't preach pet doctrine, or should I say, would to God that we would not do that. What we find, we find in the Holy Scriptures. These are the 66 books which God has inspired. Amen? I say it all the time. You're not reading a book. You're reading a volume. It's not a book. The Bible is a volume. 39 books coupled in the old with 27 in the new. I hate to tell you, that's a library. It's not just a book. Written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, the Bible itself is a miraculous book. We can say with confidence as believers in Christ, there's nothing on the planet like the Bible. You might like a lot of authors or put stock in their philosophy. I'm telling you right now, 
there's nothing like the Bible. Nothing. And I believe, first and foremost, the Bible teaches the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture. Number two, I believe that good theology supports the position. And the only place we can get good theology, or should I say we can derive our theology, is from the Bible. Amen? It's got to come from the Bible. And last but certainly not believe, I, I believe this is an important one, and this is slightly more philosophic, and I'm okay to admit that. I believe with many others that a preacher's rapture is in keeping with the nature and moral character of God. And I hope to give you a couple examples of the Old Testament of that. But let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I think there's nothing probably in all of Pauline theology that points harder to a pre-tribulational rapture than this passage. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting with verse 13, says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall be always with the Lord. And this is germane. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So one of Paul's first things is that he does not want the believers in Thessalonica to be ignorant, okay? The Thessalonians had apparently concluded that those who slept, those who were dead, would somehow miss the victories and the glories of the Lord's return. Those who sleep is an expression chosen in lieu of the dead. Now, although the pagans also use the phrase sleep, as a metaphor for death, I think it's especially appropriate for Christians because of death's temporary nature for those who are in Christ. Uh, in fact, if you think about it, it's the dead who are first. The dead are first. So Paul wanted, again, the Thessalonians to comfort one another with these words, a very comforting doctrine. Paul presents for us here in verses 13 to 17, words of encouragement as had he had even sent Timothy to encourage the church there in Thessalonica. Uh, Parakalesius is a Greek word. It's a compound word, actually. It means call unto one side. And so it's a, very, it's a very encouraging word itself. It means something like, come and walk with me. Parakalesia. Come and come on the long side of me. It's a very encouraging word, and that's what Paul really wanted for the Thessalonians. He intended believers to encourage one another as well with these words. Not only was Paul writing to encourage them, he wanted them now to mutually be able to encourage one another. But one of the most encouraging things I can personally think of is the fact that Jesus is coming back for us. He has not forsaken us. He has not forgotten us. But he will surely come, and even 
in his own way, parakalasia. He will call us to his side. In a real way, when someone dies in Messiah, we're going to see them again. Because if you think about it rightfully, the only thing they're really doing is beating us to the finish line. And that's the beautiful thing in Messiah Jesus is that death is not the finality it is for some people in this fallen world. In Christ, death is, see you later. And it's not really goodbye. Goodbye has a finality to it. It's got a sting, it's got a pinch. When someone goes home to be with the Lord because absence from the body is to be present with Christ, that's what Paul says. There's not finality. They've merely gone on ahead of us. The rapture will be one of the greatest reunions. Nay, I back up. It'll be the greatest reunion the world has or shall ever see. Think of everyone you know in your mind's eye right now who has died in Christ, who has died faithful in the beloved. The Bible says beautiful are the death of his saints. And there's a reason for that. Because in Christ Jesus, death is not the end. It's the beginning. Now, there's plenty of reasons we believe this. Paul makes it clear that the reason we believe that the dead will rise again is because Jesus himself was raised again. Jesus is the first resurrection in the Bible. And I know some smarty pants out there always wants to argue me later. Well, you know, other people rose from the dead, Pastor Jay. Yeah, they were resuscitations to life and then they died again. Because resurrection is forever. All right, Lazarus died again. Remember, I told you months ago, they found his tomb in Cyprus. Lazarus, friend of Jesus, dead four days and then came to life again. How would you like that for an epitaph on your, on your headstone? Why did Lazarus go to Cyprus? Because the Pharisees wanted him dead. Because everyone knew he was dead. And then all of a sudden, he wasn't dead again. You got to get rid of a guy like that. Okay? I'm sure plenty of them were at or had heard people who were at his funeral. Remember, when Jesus wants them to roll the stone away, what, is, what do all the people say there in Bethany? No, no, Lord. He's been in there four days. He's rotten. All right? The King James has it the best. It says, Lord, roll not back the stone, for he stinketh. Not that we talk that way anymore, but that is a good, that is a good way to phrase it in the old, you know, the old English, the old Elizabethan. You know, he stinketh. Yeah, like, don't roll the stone back. I mean, he's been in there four days. You know, the, you ever been to Israel? Let me tell you something. Bethany's got a nice, hot, dry cli- climate. It's a, it's a great, great way for bodies to break down and have wonderful decomp by day four. And yet Jesus is the Lord of death. And he calls him forth. Now, see, that's just a resuscitation. That's coming back. We resuscitate people in ambulances and in hospitals all over the place, don't we? Just medical science has gotten really great. Jesus could do it because he's God Almighty in the flesh. But those are resuscitations. See, an exaltation body, a glorification body, I know in Calvary Chapel, people like to say new body, but it irks the snot out of me as a theologian. You're not getting a new body. Take a good look at the body you have right now. You're getting a transformation body because that's what Jesus had. And you're not getting better than Jesus. Assure yourself of that right now. Jesus's exaltation 
glorification, resurrection body bore the scars that he died with. That's how he told Thomas, take your finger, stop disbelieving, put it here, take your hand, thrust it into my side. Thomas, stop disbelieving and believe. You don't get that with a new body. You get that with a transformation body. And the Greek word there is metamorphosis. It's the same thing when the caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Don't tell me it's a new animal. If you think that, you don't know how science works. It is the same exact animal in a different stage of life. It's metamorphosis. It's transformation. You ever watch a caterpillar turn into a chrysalis? They spin nothing. They crawl up. They spin themselves a little web to, you know, to anchor off point, And then they just start to very slowly metamorphosize into a chrysalis. They turn into a little J-hook. And then they go from translucent to you can't see anything. They, you know, they get real dark. And then all of a sudden they get translucent again. And you can see things are going on inside of that cocoon. And when it comes out, it is this beautiful, wonderful transformational form. It's the same exact animal that has undergone amazing, glorious change. That's what we're awaiting. We're awaiting a body that doesn't hurt anymore, gets sick anymore, doesn't age anymore. You know, and I had an argument one time with a good friend who said, well, Pastor Jay, I'm going to be a size one in heaven. And I said, oh, really? Who will you impress? hate to burst your bubble on this one. What, you think like the angels are going to goon over you? Whoa, my God. Who cares? So what? I care if you're a size one or a size 102. And Jesus doesn't care either. Trust me. He loves you in spite of your own crazy ideas. Okay, it doesn't matter. We're not, we're not, we don't go to heaven to impress anyone. We go there to glorify and extol fall down at the feet of Jesus, cast our crowns at his feet. Amen? That's what they're there. That's what we're there for. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, but now Christ deserves from the dead as become the first roots of those who have fallen asleep. Very, very important Jewish idea. All right? Very important. First fruits is a festival. All right? It is during the barley harvest. If you know anything about agriculture in Israel, the first fruit to come forward is not wheat, it's barley. Barley comes a good couple weeks before wheat. You would take your first shiv, that's the barley that's able to be you know, harvested, and you'd bind it up with string, and you'd take it to the, and you'd take it to the tabernacle before the temple stood. Tabernacle first, then the temple. You would take it there and you would burn it before the Lord. I know some people are thinking, like, what? Those Israelites are crazy. Why are you burning perfectly good barley that you could be turning into bread and, and eating? You're taking it there because it's a principle of tithing. Does God get our sloppy seconds? Or does he get the first tenth of everything? No, he's worthy of all of it and only requires a small portion of all of it. You take it there, you burn it, and in faith what you're saying to God is, here it is, Lord, this is the first of the harvest, and we give it to you willingly, knowing that as if we come in faith and offer this, you will give us a bountiful harvest for the rest of the season. It's a faithfulness principle. 
You give God the first, he assures you of all the rest. That's why Jesus is the first fruits of the risen of the dead. Now, this is why Christian theologians continue to say that the resurrection of Christ is the crux of all Christianity itself. And I agree. If there's no resurrection, then you have believed in absolute futility of mind and it is frivolous. If Christ is not risen, then we are of all men and women on this planet to be the most pitied. Believe you me, if Jesus is not risen, Christianity is not a hope. It's the cruelest joke ever thought up. This is why our faith is where our faith is. The resurrection, everything hangs on the resurrection. Furthermore, Paul says that this passage in 1 Thessalonians is something that we know by a word of the Lord. But I have to ask you, this is so difficult because this one is something that stumped me for decades of study. What did Paul mean here? And I don't think I have an end-all, be-all answer for you, to be completely honest. Several revelations are made here in the verses that follow. First, the dead will rise and join the Lord prior to the living joining him. All right? So this tells us here that, again, the dead, they're going to precede the living. The living do not precede the dead in Christ. This is hard for us, but we need to remember and remind ourselves that their bodies will rise first and will be rejoined to their spirits. In that way, they go before the living. This is what it means that Christ will bring back with him those who sleep in Messiah. When you die in Christ, your body goes into the ground, your spirit ascends to be with the Lord. So then you would have to think to yourself, when will I get a transformational body? At the rapture, when the Lord will bring with him all who sleep in Messiah. Two, the Lord's descent will be with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. So this is quite an event. Number three, those who were dead as well as the living, will be caught up together. The word there, caught up, is the Greek word harpazo. It is the word that we take rapture from. It goes from harpazo, the Greek, into the Latin, raptoros, into the English, rapture. And this is funny because people who don't like the rapture say, well, you know the word rapture is not in the Bible? And I go, you know the word Bible is not in the Bible? Yeah. Didn't mean to break your heart on that one, but there's a lot of words that aren't in the Bible and the concepts are all in the Bible. You, weren't for, you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible anywhere. You can look for it for a thousand years and you won't find it. You will find a God who describes himself and his nature as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But just because you can't find the man-made equivalent of that doesn't mean the doctrine doesn't exist in reality. It most certainly does. You don't like the word rapture? Start calling it the harpazo. That's the Greek word. But other people say, well, it doesn't really mean what you think it means. Well, there's two really good examples of it used in the New Testament. Acts 8.39, when Philip is done baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, the second he comes up out of the water, it says the spirit of God harpazoed, picked up and moved Philip, and he was found at Azotus, which is like 15 to 20 miles out to the coast of the Mediterranean. And that means that, yes, 
the Holy Spirit miraculously moved Philip and got him where he needed to be because Philip was faithful in stopping and preaching the gospel to the eunuch when he had questions. The second good example is 2 Corinthians 12 too, where the apostle Paul himself says, I know a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, ascended into the third heaven. I will personally share with you, I believe that Paul's spirit ascended into the third heavens when he was stoned at Lystra and left for dead. Because it says that the companions who were with him drug his lifeless body out of Lystra. Okay? So why Paul laid there dead, and remember, everyone's got a foreign concept of what it is to be dead in the West. We think like such Westerners, we should really kind of chide ourselves on too much Western thinking and start thinking a little more Easternly. Um, Jews have always known what it is to be dead because James wrote about it. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. I'll tell you when you'll be dead. It's not when your brain waves go flat. It's not when your heart stops beating. It is when your spirit separates from your body. Then you will be dead because your body can't live without your immaterial self. You have to have your spirit. And what happens when your spirit separates from your body? Your spirit goes to one of two places. Paul says he ascended to the third heavens. That confuses a lot of people because not enough pastors break it down. The Jews believed in three heavens. Pete Silverman will back me up. I got another Jew who's got my back. And he's more Jewish than me, so he's really got my back. The first heaven, or renos, is the firmament. It's where the birds fly. You might call it the sky. The second heaven, which is above the first heaven, is where planetary bodies live. You might call it outer space. The heaven that is on top of the second heaven's outer space is God's throne room. That's the best heaven. So where the birds fly, first heaven, planetary bodies and stars, second heaven, where God resides. Dimensionally, that's outside of space and time. And it is above, ergo, outer space. That's the third heavens. That is where Paul went. And then Paul's spirit was sent by God back down. He jumps back up, still probably pretty bloodied, goes back into Lystra and preaches some more. How's that for a missionary heart? Last but certainly not least, we learn that all believers will be with the Lord forever. Verse 17 is the most comforting thing. Believers at the point of the rapture will be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. Paul validated these assertions with the appeal to divine authority. Verse 15 says, we tell you by the word of the Lord. Now, whether the Lord's own word and Logan Curio, the very word of our master, was a reference to the teachings of Jesus while on earth or of later revelation, it's hard to say, but it confirmed the accuracy of that which follows. So various attempts have been made to identify this source more specifically. Some people say Jesus spoke the words while on earth and their substance are recorded later in Matthew and in John. Now I'll be honest with you. There are similarities between the passage of first Thessalonians and the gospel accounts. It includes a trumpet in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, 31. There is a resurrection spoken about in John's gospel, John 11, 25 and 26. 
And again, back to the Olivet Discourse, it does say that there is a gathering of the elect. Yet I'll tell you this much, the dissimilarities between it and the gospel sayings of Jesus far outweigh the resemblances. It far outweighs it. So verse 15 through 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4 does not contain, at least according to my research, a single quotation from the incarnational earthly Jesus that occurred in any other extant source. I can't find it anywhere in the New Testament. Now, there are a couple of possibilities. Thinking, oh no, we can't believe it. No, hang on, hold, hold your horses. If it is a saying passed from Jesus' early disciples to Paul, it was not recorded in any of the gospels. Are there such examples? And people say no, and I'd say, yes, there is. That's exactly what 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 is. That which I received, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread, broke it, and gave thanks. That is an early thing that was passed down orally from Christian to Christian, and that's how Paul learned it. Paul was not a follower of Messiah Jesus. He's a later disciple of the risen Jesus. So how did Paul know about that Pesach, that Passover meal, that Jesus, that tender meal, Luke 22, Jesus said, with, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this meal with you. And that's a doubling up in the Greek, trying to show strong emphasis. How did Paul know? It was passed on to him from another disciple. That's how he knew. Now, that's one possibility. If it is, it's not recorded for us anywhere. Or it might have originated as a divine revelation from the exalted Jesus, either to Paul or maybe to another apostle or prophet. But again, the event is not written in any of the epistles. Do we have examples of that? We sure do. Who showed up and knocked Paul square off his donkey? The risen Jesus. Paul also tells us that he spent time with the Lord in Arabia. What might the Holy Spirit have taught Paul? while he was in Arabia. You want the answer? I have the answer, you ready? I don't know. But I bet it was awesome. So awesome, in fact, Paul didn't have space to write about it. But in heaven, maybe we'll ask him. So what does 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18 affirm for us? Four really awesome things. The dead in Christ will not miss the rapture, although their spirits have ascended to the right hand of the Father, although they're there with Messiah Jesus now, enjoying all kinds of wonderful fellowship, they're going to enjoy the bodily fellowship that all of us collectively, the whole body of Christ will enjoy at the rapture. We're not going to precede the dead in Messiah. Number two, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up in the cloud to meet the Lord Jesus. It's gonna be the greatest reunion ever. Number three, after this event, we shall ever be with the Lord. There will be nothing that can separate us from the love of Almighty God at that point. We will ever be with the master. And number four, this teaching is meant to comfort us. And when we break into small groups tonight, I have a two-folded kind of question for you guys. And I want you to start thinking about it right now. In which, in which way do you personally, so you can share with your brothers and sisters, do you find comfort in this doctrine? Don't think it's just like one or two. 
It's deeply multifaceted. I want you to start thinking about it. But while you think, I want to show you a few examples of God's high moral character in the Old Testament. What I want to do is I want to look at the Old Testament patterns because I believe God repeats things for us because sometimes we're a little dense. Now, I know that the things that were often repeated to me in my youth were the things I needed to learn most. And I find that our Heavenly Father, who is a good, good Father, does the same thing. When the scriptures repeat, it's probably, it's probably God's way of saying, you're not grasping this. Maybe you just needed to read it again. So I want to show you some proofs and good texts for rapture theory. Because look, I'm going to level you right now. I think the rapture is a theory. Want to know why I think the rapture is a theory? Because every eschatological position is a theory. Because it hasn't unfolded yet. And I'm, I'm willing to say right now, there's a great chance I'm totally wrong. I also think there's a really good chance that I'm right. But I think there's, you know, the, the possibility always exists that you could be wrong. Humility in our study is our aim. Not having every answer lined up. When you, when you study so hard, you have every answer lined up and you box everything off, you become the know-it-all Bible jerk that no one likes to spend time with. And I know that firsthand. Humility is what we're after. Amen? I think Enoch is an awesome typological or foreshadowing of God's rescuing grace. You have to turn to it, but if you want, you can. Genesis 5, 23 and 24 is a list of genealogies. And there's something marvelous about when we get to this guy. All the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. And then he was not, for God took him. All the other deaths are recorded. This guy worked so many days and he had this many children and then he died at this age. And then this guy walked with God and, he, and then he died and at all these different ages. And you get to Enoch and Enoch walked with God, which is a phrase in the Hebrew, which means he was righteous. That's what that means. He was right with God, which is what righteous means. Rightness is righteousness. He was right with God. And God took him, which means... Exactly what it says it means. Enoch did not experience death. God took him. I like to call him the first astronaut. Because if he went to the third heaven, then he had to go through the second one too. And that makes Enoch the first astronaut. How do I know that's what it means? Because the writer of Hebrews tells me that's what it, that's what it means. Now go to the New Testament counterpart. Hebrews 11.5 says, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Now, Enoch was taken to heaven by the Lord because of his faithfulness. And if you go on to read the rest of that historic narrative, it is shortly before God flooded the earth in judgment because the thoughts and intents of the human heart at that point were nothing but wicked save Noah and his family and so Enoch in a precursory way was taken before judgment came only Noah and seven of his family members were saved and preserved through the flood everyone else perished in God's judgment of the world's wicked ways now are you getting a clearer picture 
of why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? Sometimes it's just a slam dunk. The Jews will be preserved through the tribulation period by God's grace. Those outside of Messiah Jesus will perish in the tribulation period. And those who are in Messiah Jesus will be raptured or rescued from the whole entire experience. And in this way, Enoch is representative of the believer in Messiah Jesus. So there are all three elements, it all fits. But is it just one, is this just a one-off? No, it's not just a one-off. Lot's rescue from Sodom shortly before the city is judged also shows God saves the righteous from being judged with the unrighteous. Please see the pattern with me because you're going to meet all kinds of people who want to argue with you later and I want you well informed to give them the truth. Watch the pattern. Genesis 19, 12 through 17. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters and whomever you have in the city? Take them out of this place for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great for the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot, we can't destroy this place with you here. And when they dilly-dallied, Genesis 19, 17 happened. And while he lingered, the men who were two angels took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass that when he had brought them outside, that he said, escape for your life. And what happened to Lot's wife? She didn't turn around and look. That's a terrible way to exegete that passage. The Hebrew is ever so clear. She went, this is bunk. And she went back to the city and she was judged with it. And in that way, she was probably covered in either bitumen or, you know, brimstone. And she became a pillar of salt, which sounds really terrible. But with longing in her heart, she didn't believe. And you see, if you really don't believe, if you're not really a believer, then you fall into the judgment of this world. And I know a lot of people will have a hard time with Lot. He did some pretty unrighteous things. Peter says that righteous man vexed his soul living every day in Sodom. And God will not allow his righteous to be judged along with the unrighteous. And remember, in this life, it's not everything that you do. Positionally, it's who are you in? None of us are righteous in and of ourselves anyway. It's like, well, all my righteous deeds, God said all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags in his sight. It is about grace, not about works. Because believe you me, think on it in your own mind. If it's about works and one is saved by good works, how many good works does it take? <gasps> what if I have five more than you? What if Pastor Chris has two more than me? What if Pete Silverman has 20 more than all of us? It's a ridiculous target to hit. And it's ridiculous. You can't, bypass, you can't bypass the grace factor. Christ suffered the righteous for us, the unrighteous, and has provided salvation for us. We're righteous because by faith we're in him. 
because that's what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says. You are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. If it was about works, you could beat a drum and blow a trumpet. Look how great I am. And that's not what salvation in Messiah is. It's just not. Was Lot righteous to a fault? No. But he's a follower of Yahweh. And that makes him righteous. And God couldn't judge the wicked deeds, the hearts of the men of Sodom, while even one righteous man was in the city. There's another really good one too. I think the account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace is another interesting typological look at rapture theory. As you read through Daniel chapter three, you may miss the typology that God has placed here for our faith and assurance, but I think that's what it's really there for. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar in this whole passage of scripture is a kind of or a type of the actual Antichrist who will persecute the Jews during the great seven-year tribulation. Therefore, I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the ones who refused to worship the image set up by Nebuchadnezzar, are therefore kind of or a type of Israel. They were all Israelites anyway, I got to tell you. And because they would not bow down and worship this golden image the king had set up of himself, as a result, they're judged and condemned by the king of Babylon. They are to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, Nebuchadnezzar makes the furnace so hot in his dementia, in his overzeal to have these guys smoked, that the men who take the Hebrew children into the fire, when they open the doors to cast them in, it says a backdraft comes out and it kills all of Nebuchadnezzar's guards. Unrighteousness will always be judged. And yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are completely unharmed. And a fourth was with them in the fire. I'm going to upset you probably strongly. I do not believe it was Jesus. I believe it was an angel. It doesn't say that it was Jesus. Very easily, God could have just sent an angel, and an angel is able to come and give aid to men because that's what angels do. It does not distinctly say it. And yes, I have enough degrees behind my name to tell you I've studied a little harder than the average Joe. Could it be Jesus? It could have been, but it just says Benai Elohim. And the Benai Elohim are the sons of God. And the sons of God in Genesis 6 are angels. If it had said the angel of the Lord it, with a definite article, I'd have a different, you know, leaning there. But regardless of that, who sent the angel? Jesus sent the angel. Then this way they preserve through the fiery trial. They go through the fiery furnace, just like the Israelites who will be saved through the tribulation period. But here's the conundrum, guys. Where is Daniel? Are we to believe that the man who was so righteous, he gets thrown into a lion's den for praying when he's commanded not to by Darius. Are we to believe that Daniel bowed down and worshiped the multi-metallic image? I got that right now. I, I can't believe that for a second. I don't know if you can, but I can't. You see, the king's edict affected the whole population. This was for everyone living in Babylon proper. And Daniel was one of the most well-known and highest officials in the government. So I'm sure if he was in Babylon, this would have affected him too. But here's the truth. He's simply out of the narrative. You don't find Daniel 
anywhere in this narrative. He just disappeared, only to reappear again after the terrible fire has ended. Most likely, he is simply not in Babylon during this event. And if you think about it, he was probably on a royal emissary-style missionary journey somewhere else. He's a high-ranking official. He could have been anywhere else. The Babylonian Empire in the time of Nebuchadnezzar was ginormous. Daniel wasn't there. So you see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego become a type of the Jews who, like Noah and his family, are sealed and go through the entire 70th week of Daniel, also known as the Day of God's Wrath or the Great Tribulation. Daniel here will represent the one who is a follower of Jesus Christ, one who is in Messiah. Notice that judgment has been a common thread in all three types. I have all my friends who are mostly in hard reformed camps who say, oh, what do you do with all the martyrs for Jesus? See, he doesn't always rescue the righteous. I never said he always rescues the righteous. Many shall be martyred for their faith. I think there's a lot of martyrdom to come. Don't get upset with me. It's just a theory. I said God doesn't allow his elect, his hagios, his saints, to be judged with the unrighteous. That's totally different. It's a total and absolute different scenario. And if you have a little bit of a perspective off, you'll miss it. If you think the church is Israel, I will continue to say, I think you're cracked off. Nowhere in the New Testament is the church ever called Israel. Israel is Israel. The church is the church. Israelites are physical descendants of Abraham, also called Abraham in English. All right? The church is comprised of those physical descendants of Abraham who've placed their faith in Jesus and every Gentile who's looked on Christ with faith. That's the difference between the church and Israel. They're different. And I don't think you can ever mix the two together. I think Paul makes it clear as crystal at the end of Galatians, and yet many people still can't even see it there. May the peace of God be upon the Israel of God and the churches. Do you think Paul doesn't know how to differentiate? He uses two different words for the same group. No, Paul wants peace. He wants the peace of God to be on the Israel of God and upon the churches, showing a distinction in Galatians 6, not a parallelism. That's a distinction. And in all honesty, if you go read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you think, that the church has replaced Israel, then I have to tell you, you're blind. Because it says a blinder remains on the eyes of most Israelites until, until God takes it off. And it says Israel will all be saved. Are you telling me the church will be saved? Isn't it pretty obvious that the church is going to be saved? I mean, that's the reason all of us placed our faith in Messiah, isn't it? It was to be saved from wrath and from the stupidity of the you know, worship of self. Let's face it, that's where you're at before you have a saving moment, before God rescues you. You're all about you. Who sits on the throne of your heart? I'll tell you, you have two decisions who sits on the throne of your heart, whether you like it or hate it. Ready? It's Jesus or you. And it ain't both. One sits on the throne of your heart. It's either you and your self-willed or you've surrendered unto the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now he sits enthroned on your heart.
and you allow the Lord to mold and make and shape you and conform you. He is the potter and you are the clay and he puts you back on the spinning wheel and he'll put us back on the spinning wheel and he'll continue to mold us and make us until he's ready to take us home. That's when you're ready to go home, when you're done. Other than that, sanctification is a long part of the Christian life. So let's look at these common threads if we would because it's all about being ransomed from the wicked judgments. God doesn't allow his righteous ones to be judged with the wicked ones. Notice, Enoch was taken before the waters of the flood came. Lot was rescued before the Lord rained down fire on Sodom and Daniel simply was not in Babylon, probably doing something else. Otherwise, if Daniel was in Babylon, then guess what? It would have been four youths in the fire because you know Daniel would have went with them. So let's try and have a proper understanding of the book of Daniel because so many people read the book of Revelation without reading what I would call the key to unlock it. If you haven't guessed yet, Daniel is what I call the key to unlock the book of Revelation. If you don't understand Daniel, you'll never understand the book of Revelation. We need to turn to Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, We'll just take 20 through 25 now and then the next after this. Now, while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sins and the sins of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplications before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked to me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the walls even in troublesome times. Now, you have to notice that 70 weeks are told to Daniel by the angel Gabriel. Weeks is inserted. That's not what it says in Hebrew. It simply says Shabuah. In Hebrew, that's the word seven. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people. We put in week because it's a very Western way of thinking. This is like when someone in America hears the word dozen, the next two things they think of are eggs and donuts. said someone back there. Now, that's a common way to sell eggs, isn't it? You can find them in packets of 18 if you look hard enough, but most of them are 12s. Dunkin' Donuts has capitalized on 12. They sell you 12 donuts for some inordinate amount of money, and it's just really garbage, trans fats, sugars, and a couple other things. Hey, sorry, just you are what you eat, theologically and physically, I'm telling you. 
importance. You just, you are always remember that. Remember, if you ever go to the doctor at 35, 600 pounds, overweight, and the doctor tells you you have type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and are going to die soon, he's not the one who shoved you full of butter and sugar your whole life. That was you. Like it or not, you are what you consume. You are what you eat. Eat well, be in good shape. Eat theologically well, be theologically healthy. You are what you eat. It works either which way, physically and biblically, both ways. It's not weeks, it's years. 77s have been decreed. But if you count as well as I do, 62, right? And seven don't equal 70, do they? No, they equal 69. There's 69 first and then another week comes. Most theologians, and I'm probably in agreement with all of them, believe that it took probably seven years just to get Jerusalem and the temple in decent enough shape for the next 62-year period to kick in. That's why it says 7 and 62. And we'll move on and take verse 26 and 27. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war's desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end of the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So what I want to try and do is explain a massively complex piece of scripture with lots of cool animation. Okay, so from Daniel 9.25a to Daniel 9.25b, just one little period, you have 69 weeks, which is 483 years. This is literally from the decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus in March 5th, 444 BC, recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter two, verses one through eight. If you follow that and go through the years, that'll bring you right until Jesus Christ's triumphal entry, which would be March 30th, AD 33, as recorded for us in Luke 19, 20 through 28. Now, most people try to do the math and it doesn't work. Wanna know why it doesn't work? Because we're on a Julian calendar and the Jews were on a lunar calendar. And if you count it, guess what? If you follow a lunar cycle, it is 12 months of 30 days each for a year of 360 days, not 365 days. Do you ever wonder why we have to have a leap year every couple years? To make up for the fact that we messed up the calendar that God had ordained. I believe we should go right back to a lunar calendar. It's ever so easy to follow the phases of the moon. But if you do the math, you come to 173,880 days. That'll bring you right where you need to be. That's after the 69th week of Daniel. Here we learn that Messiah is, in Hebrew, karat, literally means suffer the death penalty. That's what karat means, to be put to death. Your Bible probably says, is cut off. What happened to Jesus? He did suffer the death penalty. Not being a Roman citizen, he was crucified. 
with two insurrectionists, probably, not thieves. So Messiah shall be cut off, April 3rd, AD 33. The city and the temple was destroyed when? AD 70. Which if you haven't figured out a little bit of biblical numerology, Jesus' incarnational ministry was three years, from AD 30 to AD 33. If you take it from AD 30 to AD 70, you've got 40 years, which is the number of judgment. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights upon the earth. Israel in the rebellion wandered in the wilderness of Zin for 40 years. It's a judgment number. That's why the temple was destroyed. Jesus, in his mercy and grace, and I believe it's that, gave Israel 40 years. That means that after he walked with them for three years in the flesh, that means that he gave them an extended 37 years with the apostles and prophets of the New Testament to get right and turn. Because the truth of the matter is, once Jesus goes to the cross, the blood of bulls and goats go out the window. And the only thing that brings righteousness with God is the blood of his son, Christ. So that'll bring us now to Daniel 9, 27. This is the then. Then after Messiah is cut off, you will have one solid week or quite literally one seven year period left. Then after Messiah is cut off, the final week begins, which we call the tribulation. And that's pretty much Revelation chapter 6 through 18 is the harshest part of that. Also, Jesus tells us a lot about it in Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. So what you get there is you get a massive gap, well over 2,000 years long, between the last week of the 69 and the opening of the 70. And can you guess what the gap is? It's the church. The gap is the church. So says Galatians 3, Romans 11, and Ephesians 3. That's the age of grace. This is the age where we are to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God before, before the 70th week of Daniel. When is it coming? I don't know. Let me tell you something. Today is one day one day sooner than it was yesterday, and tomorrow will be even one, one day sooner. Once we have a proper understanding of the 70 weeks of Daniel, we can spend a little time in the book of Revelation. Now, I want to share with you what I think is, without fail, some of the most important things in the entire book of Revelation. And I'm not saying that in a teacher kind of sense, so now you'll go read the book of Revelation. I'm just telling you, I think, that if you mess up this opening section, you can muck up the rest of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter one, verses nine through 11 and 17 through 19. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patnos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, 
do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. If we don't get this little subsection right, you misunderstand everything else in the book of Revelation. Let me tell you something. These are the primary words the Lord Jesus Christ in his exaltation body tells John on Patmos. And when, when John gets the vision, when he sees Jesus, he falls down as though dead. I'll be honest, I'm with a lot of people. I think John dropped a heart attack in the presence of the risen Christ. Because if you look at the high Christology of Revelation, it is Jesus and it is like, wow, Jesus, all right? He's got, you know, his feet are as burnished bronze. He has fire in his eyes. His hair is as white as wool. He's walking in the midst of seven, you know, lampstands. He's got stars in his hand. And John says, mental overload too much. And you would have done the same thing. But notice what Jesus says. And this is important, and that's why I underlined it. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. So many people spend so little time in their studies in Revelation 2 and 3, and I say, why would you do that? There's so, so much of what's to be learned is what Jesus is writing to the churches. Of that day, these churches existed while Jesus speaking to John in AD 95. These are the churches of Asia Minor. These seven are very important. And then the second thing I want to point out is something that I think is even more technical, but you really need to understand it because there's a divine outline in the book of Revelation and so many Christians today read it wonky and backwards. Anyone know how they're reading it? You do realize, do you see the outline? It's not hard to see. Write the things which you have seen, past. Write the things which are, present. Write the things which will take place in Greek, metatauta. After this, future. John, write what have you seen. Write what's going on now. Write about the future that I will show you. And that's the whole entire breakdown of the book of Revelation. And I'll show you another cool chart that I just really like. Everything that John had seen, he'd already written about. John was on Patmos. Chapter one. Write the things which are present. The seven churches of Asia Minor. That's Revelation 2 and 3. You see 4 through 22? Everything in the aqua blue there, that color, everything's in future. None of that, I believe, has happened yet. Any of it. And the reason is because of the Greek phrase there. Metatauta. Metatauta assures us of this. Regardless of your leaning on how you read and interpret the book of Revelation, you have to read the outline in there. Otherwise, you're deviating from good interpretive skills. Metatauta literally means after this. That's all it means. And it's a technical term in the book of Revelation. And what's important is it's a sequential word. This, then this. This, then this. After this means this happens first. Now this happens. Metatauta, after this. It's important. It's a very technical term. Let's look at Revelation 3, 7 through 10, because I think, again, the rapture is strongly tied in here. And unto the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, 
These things says he who is holy, who is true, who has the keys of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Just want to focus ever so quickly on Revelation 3.10. What is it that the Philadelphians are commended for? It's in the positive. You have a little strength. That means you're not weak. You're strong in Christ. You have a little. It's not, it's not a pejorative. It's not in the negative in the Greek. It's actually a positive and affirming thing. And furthermore, what had they done? They had kept the word about impatient endurance. And because they did that, Jesus says he will keep you from the hour. The important thing to know there is that is the Greek prepositional phrase, ek. Ek means out or out of. It does not mean in, that's en, that's the Greek word en. It doesn't mean alongside of, that's the Greek prepositional phrase, para, from which we get the word parallel, next to, two things that line up symmetrically. There are lots of other Greek phrases. If God wanted to keep Christians safe through, he would use the word dia. Dia means through. Ek means out of. And when you draw water out of a well, the only thing you can do is first dip a bucket in so that you can ek the bucket out, now full of ice cold ground water. Ek. There's a trial coming on the whole world. And Jesus tells these Christians, because you've been faithful, patient, and enduring, I'll keep you out of it. Now notice this. Some people will say, well, so then only the Philadelphian Christians got raptured. No. At the end of every single letter to every church in Asia Minor, what does it say? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, pluralize it, churches. I think there's something to be learned for every church on planet Earth in the seven churches. And no, I don't take the hyper-prophetic view that it's churches throughout time. I know Missler did that. Praise Jesus for his stuff, but I just disagree. I think the seven letters to the seven churches typify seven different kinds of churches, and you can find all of those kind of churches on the planet. You can find driven churches that have 10,000 different you know, things going on, and you know what they don't have? They don't have zero evangelism. And I think that's the problem with Ephesus. Everyone thinks they, left, they lost their love for Jesus, but I defy you to show me that in a text that doesn't say that. It says they stopped doing the things they had done at first, which means have a powerful eyewitness testimony, telling outsiders what Christ has done. They lost that drive. They did everything else. You'll find churches like Sardis who have a name that they're alive and they're full of nothing but crusty dead men's bones. Nothing alive at all. You'll find very fleshy, outworking churches with a million different programs. I don't know how much righteousness goes on, but you'll find them, and they're just like the church of Laodicea. And Jesus' counsel is, you think you're rich and you're wretched. I counsel you to buy white garments from me. You think you can see and you're blind. 
come and get salve for me that you might cure your eyesight. That's not a good letter, guys. I gotta, I gotta level with you. We need to put stock in the seven letters. These are letters from Christ to the church. And brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are part of the church. And those letters, they most certainly, they're for us. There's things in there for us. Let's move quickly through Revelation 4. I want to tie the study up. Revelation 4, 1 through 4 says, After these things, metatauta, I looked and behold the door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place. Metatauta after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold the throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like Jasper and Sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Why do I place so much stock in the rapture? Because this passage has so much to add on the heels of chapter 3. After these things, John is taken to heaven in spirit. Come up here. A rapture of sorts. This is where John follows Jesus' command to write the things that will take place after this. In chapter 1, John recorded the past. He had been on Patmos for some time. He was in prison there. It was a penal colony. This is where Rome threw you and locked you away when they wanted to forget about you. And John at 90 is working the minds of Patmos. He records that. Then in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he records the present as Jesus told him to, the teachings of Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Here, however, in chapter 4 begins the future. For the church is still physically on the earth and no one has struck a peace treaty with Israel. That's very important. Who is going to broker a seven-year peace treaty with Israel? It hasn't happened yet, and there's a reason for that. So what does John see in heaven? When John hits the throne room of heaven, after seeing some of God's glorious beauty, he sees 24 thrones surrounding the one kingly throne. The description of the elders, the presbyteroi, includes items that were promised to the, over, the overcomers of the church in the book of Revelation. White garments, Revelation 3.5 and 3.18. Crowns, Revelation 3.11. And thrones, Revelation 3.21. It's also true that elders were sometimes a representative group, whether it be in the local church, like Acts 14.23 or 15.6, or 20.17 or 21.18, or the lesser known fact, the 24 who represented the thousands of priests in Israel from 1 Chronicles 24, 7 through 19. I believe that these are humans because the word presbyteroi is used 99% of the time of humans and not of angels. In the Old Testament, elders represent the people of God. Again, especially in the Old Testament. The 24 courses of the priesthood represents all the priests of Israel, which there were thousands of, but they were broken into 24 courses in 1 Chronicles 24. 
And the 12 sons of Israel, coupled along with the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, could easily represent all those who are faithful to God. In Revelation 5, 9, and 10, the 24 elders sing a song of praise to Jesus, and they cry out, and listen to this carefully. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In this passage, the 24 elders clearly spoke as representatives of all God's people, of the great company of the redeemed. All in all, not to believe her, this too hard, but I believe John sees a group of those who were redeemed in Messiah in heaven. I think John sees a perfect representation of the church already in heaven, in Revelation 4, in a great vision when he's called, come up here. So let's take a very brief look at the first half of the tribulation to try and tie this all up. Some people are thinking, what is the tribulation even for? Like, why? It just sounds just mean. Well, the tribulation is predicted time and time again in the Old Testament. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. And it says, that day is great, so that none is like it. Notice it doesn't say it's a time of the Gentiles' trouble. Does it say that? No. Does it say it's a time of the church's trouble? No. Who, whose trouble is it? Jacob. How many sons did he have? Twelve. You can say it. It's okay. This is the time, this is Israel. This is Israel specific. It's referred to as the day of the Lord in Joel 2.31. Zechariah 12.10 says it is a time where God will pour out on the house of David a spirit of grace. And that all of Israel at that time will look on him who was pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. I believe it's when the Jewish nation will see Jesus Who's coming back for them? Therefore, the tribulation is meant to bring erring Israel back to Father God through Jesus the Messiah. But wait, there's more. I don't know if you caught it. We already looked at it. But you have kept my command to preserve. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. When you go through the book of Revelation, Revelation, starting with, starting with chapter 6, and you take a look, you're going to find a repeat phrase, two of them technically. You will find the word saints. You will not find the word church. After chapter 3, you will not find the word church in the book of Revelation. Ecclesia. Boop. It is gone. You won't find it. Trust me, I'm very analytical and a little sarcastic. When I was 17, I went looking. It's not there. Believe you me. What you will find is a class of two peoples. Hagios. Saints, well, that's an Old Testament designation anyway for those who are righteous and walk with Yahweh. And the other one is earth dwellers. And if you're an earth dweller, it means all that you hold dear, all that you love, all that is sacred to you is here on earth. All your hopes and dreams, all that you place stock in is in the earth. In the first half of the tribulation, the following will take place and you should buckle up hard and I'll tell you why. Buckle up because I condensed it. I'm just, my voice is done. Jesus the Lamb is found worthy to take the scroll 
and open its seals. It says there's a scroll in heaven and someone asks who is worthy to open it. And no one's worthy. And John, John says he begins to profusely weep. He begins to weep. No one is able to open this scroll. Now, there's something special about scroll. It has writing on the inside and the outside. And you know what's weird about that? You don't know what's weird about it. That's why you came here to find out. What's weird about it is in ancient Israel, you only wrote on the smooth side of papyrus. Because when you cut river reed and press it down, it's got a smooth side and it's got a real scratchy kind of Velcro-like nasty backside. And you only write on the smooth side. Unless, unless it was a title deed to land or a house. Then the contract was so long, you wrote on the front of it and you wrote on the back of it. I believe it's the title deed to the earth that Adam and his rebellion handed over to Satan when he took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate. He turned things over because Satan is called, Satan is called the God of this aeon or the God of this age or even translated the God of this world. And Jesus, Jesus is found worthy. As John is weeping, one of the, one of the elders say to him, do not weep for the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome and he is able to open a scroll. And John says, when I looked, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. That means he can still see the scars that Messiah bears. Do you know there's only one man-made thing that will last for all of eternity? The scars on the body of Yeshua HaMashiach. The scars on the body of Christ shall remain for all eternity so that every one of us, because of his grace, can look on that and go, I am loved. I am chosen. I'm elect because of you and because of your scars. You've taken that which is disgusting and dirty and filthy and rotten and you've redeemed it. Jesus, you poured out your blood. Those scars shall be forever a perpetual reminder to all of us. Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundations of the world, he's worthy. And when Jesus cracks the first seal, things get nuts, okay? When he cracks the first, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are loosed. Peace is taken from the earth and billions will kill and be killed in war. It's billions actually, because it's a quarter of the earth's population and there are over 7 billion people presently on the earth. The earth, along with its people, will be struck with plague and famine. And this place is going to get ugly fast. When Jesus opens the sixth seal, there will be a great earthquake. The sun will become black like sackcloth, and the moon will become like blood. And many will die in the earthquake. In the first three and a half years of tribulation, the two witnesses of Messiah will have a wonderful ministry. They much are like Moses and Elisha. And yet, they're hated by the world and they're murdered. They're put to death in the holy city, Jerusalem, which is said to be more like Sodom and Gomorrah in this time. And yet, three and a half days later, the Lord will raise them to life again and bring, their, bring them literally bodily into heaven. Another kind of rapture. They will ascend square into the clouds, just as it says in Revelation 12. 
And worst of all, as the tribulation builds steam and continues to go on and on, the Antichrist shall exercise even greater and greater authority. We have to read it. Revelation 13, 11 through 18 says, And then I saw a beast coming up out of the earth. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Very Babylonian sounding, isn't it? He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, so that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number is 666. I know people have been trying to do biblical math for a billion years on this thing but I think that they're just overthinking it. It's the number of man to the third power. When was man created by almighty God? He's his crowning achievement. It's on day six. It's a very human works number, six. What is the number of the beast? Six, six, six. He is ultimately humanity personified. People will marvel at the beast. People will go around and see things like, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Oh, look at this guy. And he's going to be the man with a plan. But the problem is, he's the instead of Christ. You see the word, the Greek word anti, like every other word on the planet has a semantic range. It doesn't just mean you're against. He doesn't walk around with an I hate Jesus shirt on. I hate Jesus, boo, he doesn't do that. He walks around with a Messiah complex and says, I am the Christ. He's the instead of. And you know, who, you know who he's gonna deceive? Billions. That's who he's gonna deceive. And it says, because of their love of the earth, God will send them strong delusions. That's what it says. But there's a parallel for us and fantastic news. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is that is worshipped. See, he puts himself in the place of Christ. What does his blasphemy entail? Look, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming and that's just what the end of the book of revelation said and paul was beheaded in AD 64 some 30 years before the revelation was ever revealed to saint john and what does that prove it proves that the holy spirit is the divine author of all scripture 
And that's what he told Paul to pen. Who restrains the evil one? Who? So without fail, the Holy Spirit who restrains both evil and the coming evil one in this world. And how does he do it? He does so through the church, brothers and sisters, through you and through me, the body of Christ. Men and women filled with the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. That's what, that's what restrains evil in this world. It's good-hearted Christians who say, no. And that's why when we get all like afraid of everything and we become, you know, what I call spineless Christianity or sometimes I call it jellyfish Christianity, that's really being mean. When you roll over, you, by God's divine grace and plan, were meant to not roll over. All right? Don't roll over. The church is meant to restrain evil by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in a real way, the rapture of Christ's church would be a removal of spirit-filled believers. When this happens, then anything goes and the Antichrist will come into power. But we're not looking for the Antichrist, are we? But Jesus, who is the Christ. Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's a rapture passage, in my opinion. You see, the rapture is all about our hope in him. Titus 2, 13 says that we're looking for a blessed hope, Jesus Christ. We're not searching out Antichrist. We're not doing Bible math. We're not trying to figure out who he is. Oh, it's Obama. Oh, it's Clinton. Oh, I heard everything under the sun. You know who the Antichrist is? Keep it to yourself. Nobody knows who the Antichrist is other than Almighty God. The church isn't looking for Antichrist. You know who we're looking for? We're looking for Jesus Christ. That's who we're looking for. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, eschatology is a beautiful discipline theologically, but it's easy to get caught in the weeds and stuck in the mud. It's meant to keep the church expectant, spotless, a holy bride waiting for you, the bridegroom. So we say with John 2,000 years ago, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. We await you. But at the same time, Lord, we'll persevere until you call us home and come back for us. Bless us, O oh God, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. So we're going to cut the last worship song tonight and break into small groups. And I want you guys to go on this kind of double